Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham. And once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, Rise Against Week continues with my buddy, Joe Principe, and we get into a lot of stuff. This is, I, I wanted to have these two episodes together for so long because in Rise Against, you get two completely different pictures of Chicago hardcore through these two, uh, through Tim and Joe's journey. Anyway, I'll talk about this one more in a second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham, and he will get the message to me. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at left for Damien. Uh, there's, if you want to support the podcast, the best way to support the podcast is by telling all your friends about it, letting them all know that we do this thing here. There's also a Instagram page, uh, at turned out a punk run by Tristan and a Facebook page, facebook.com slash turned out a punk. I think there's still even a Tumblr. There might still be even a Tumblr. Uh, and, uh, but yeah, uh, so you can check those things out. If you want to support the show, you can tell your friends about it. You can, uh, subscribe to it and rate it on iTunes, or you can head over to patreon.com uh, slash turned out a punk. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you to all the people that do do that. Very much appreciate your support of this thing. And you can, um, you know, support this thing that way as well. Uh, and speaking of support, this thing would not be possible with the kind of support of the fine folks at Vans who came aboard a few years ago and said, Damien, do what you do. Just don't do it out of your own pocket. And they helped me cover the costs of doing this thing. And there are weirdly costs of doing a free podcast. I, I never would have thought it when we started this thing, but it, it, it there are costs for this thing. Who, who knew? Anyway, so thank you for, to them for allowing me to kind of uh, cover those things and do this thing. And I long for the day of getting back to doing those House of Vans uh, shows and when they come back. But uh, speaking of Vans, House of Vans, the people behind that are doing this Vans uh, Channel 66 uh, thing, and they're putting on these really fun sort of events on that. And Joe, actually today's guest, does some on the Chicago stuff that they do over there. And then there's also past guests and, and other future guests that do stuff on that thing. So check it out. Check it out. My gosh. Also check out a, a fucked up dot CC. We got reissues coming out of David comes to life. We got tickets on sale for concerts. I can't believe I'm saying that in January. And I think I don't, you know, I'm, I'm running a little, uh, a little, uh, ragged these days from, you know, homeschooling and stuff. So I don't, but I don't think I mentioned this last time, but we're now going on tour with faith. No more. In September, you can Google fucked up and faith no more, and you will find the dates for that. I believe there's three dates and then riot fest. And so this is all fingers crossed, but we are very excited to do this. You know, I'm getting, um, we've got our vac shots up here. I got my appointment for my second one. It'll be well enough time. So all things going according to plan. I'm going to spend my birthday in America playing a show with faith no more. How wild is that? Oh my gosh. I cannot wait. I cannot wait. Speaking of not waiting, you're not going to want to wait a second more before we get into today's episode. Today on the show is my buddy Joe from the band Rise Against and 88 Fingers Louie as well. Uh, 88 Fingers Louie are a huge band for me uh, and, and 
you know, still, I still love 88 Fingers Louie, obviously, as well. He has since gone on to do Rise Against, of course, which, um, as I talked about last week on the show, arguably one of the biggest punk bands in the world, you know, and one of the biggest bands to come out of this thing. And we get into talking about that on today's show. And it's amazing when you look at this band, and it is truly a pulling from like four kind of completely different scenes, all of which being punk, but it's especially the contrast in the both hardcore leaning scenes that Tim and Joe were from in the same city and just how different those places were considering that a few years earlier, everyone kind of coexisted a lot more. It's uh, I don't know. To me, this is fascinating. This is why I do this podcast to have these kind of conversations, you know, and I'm, I'm, Hoping that there's some of you out there that find this interesting too. And if not, I'm still probably going to do them anyway. All right, let's get to the show notes. Uh, what was, uh, oh, Martin's uh, book is called Get Shot. Peter Sotos worked at Vintage Vinyl, not Wax Tracks. Shades of Culture was the Montreal hip hop group we were thinking about. And shout out to Buddha Blaze. Uh, yeah. That's it. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Joe Principe on Turned Out a Punk. Joe, thank you so much for coming on the show. Dude, thanks for having me. Like, I, I'm stoked. Well, as I was just telling you off air, um, this is, I've got a billion questions for you. And I don't know if you remember this. Uh, you, you, I, I mean, you probably, you know, I, I know for a fact, you, there's probably no way you remember the actual incident, but I, I think I brought this up to you before, but like years and years ago at Snow Jam, you were just up hanging out at Snow Jam. It was kind of, I think the year after 88 Fingers Louie or the year that 88 Fingers Louie kind of called it quits. And yep. I went up to you at that show and I'm like, oh my God, I love 88 Fingers Louie, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, oh no, I got this new thing and you wait, it's going to be awesome. And I, and that was, uh, and I've carried that <laughs> moment with me my whole life. Yeah. I, it's funny. Cause I remember going, I remember like not knowing, like when 88 fingers Lee broke up, there was definitely a, a point in my life where like, do I continue with music or do I just say, fuck it and go back to college and just do that. Cause starting over just seems so daunting, you know, especially like I was probably like 25 at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a lot of my buddies like encourage me to keep on like Davey from AFI, you know, and uh, Russ from Good Riddance, especially those dudes were like, no, like you got to, you know, keep following your dream. You know, like they were super supportive. And uh, that's why we ended up going to Snow Jam was to hang out with Good Riddance. And um, yeah, like it, it was scary because I was like, oh, man, like what if at what point do I say like, like. You know, because like when you start a new band, you just think like, oh, one more year, one more year. And it's like, <laughs> am I going to be 40 years old doing the like one more year thing? Like, like yep. living in my mom's basement? <laughs> <laughs> it's very possible. You know, I, I think if it, if it wasn't for, uh, I definitely, uh, I could see myself still moving, having moved back into my parents' basement at a certain point. <laughs> still. <laughs> um, but uh, we're going to get there. We're going to get. Uh, probably not very far to be honest with you because there's so many questions I have but before we get there we got to start this thing off the way they all start off which is Joe how did you get into punk do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre absolutely um, it was definitely from my oldest sister is five years older than me and the first time I heard of like punk or more specifically the Ramones was the movie rock and roll high school like they 
they aired it on MTV and my sister recorded it like on our VCR. And I fucking watched that movie over and over again. Cause it was when you're like, I was in fourth grade and, and it, it was like blowing my mind. Like these dudes look like comic book, you know, characters. The music was like kind of silly, but, but really intriguing to me. Cause at the time I was into like Van Halen and, and kiss at the kiss was probably my favorite band. Um, like my first favorite band when I was really young and, I kind of got exposed to classic rock from my, my cousins who lived next door to me. And they were definitely like way older than me. Like they were like probably seven, eight years older than me. So they were into like ACDC, Van Halen, Kiss, Black Sabbath. Um, and I thought that was cool. But I, I just, you know, like when I heard the Ramones, I was like, oh, my God, like this, these guys are so silly and, and amazing. Like, and I, I wa- again, I watched it over and over. And then a couple of years went by and uh I, I went into my sister's room and I was kind of looking at her cassettes and she had a bunch of mixtapes from, um, you know, some of her friends and I found a cassette and it had circle jerks, wonderful dead Kennedy's plastic surgery disasters and the first suicidal record. And I was like fucking blown away. All those bands sounded so different. And so they were just so unique from one another. And there was just something that 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 energy just drew me toward it like i couldn't i just couldn't get enough and then and around the same time i got into skateboarding which led me down the thrasher path and trans world and all like i was exposed to more punk rock um from thrasher basically and um yeah and that was and that was it man like i was sold like i i was i just kind of dove headfirst into skateboarding and and punk rock and you know and also like at the same time, I, I had also been getting into like thrash metal. So like I upped my game from like metal to like Anthrax and Testament and Exodus, you know, and even Metallica. Like I, so I took I went that route and then I went the punk and hardcore route as well. It's so weird when you look at uh, Rock and Roll High School, the way the Ramones are presented in that movie, because they're like if they're like presented as like. It just almost in such contrast to to who they come across as in documentaries you know like they, they almost come across they're presented as kiss dude a hundred percent and that's why i was so like i, w- I was just so intrigued by that because yeah you could tell like these aren't like the the heartthrob like rock stars they're being portrayed yeah. as like these guys like yeah. you know like like what sticks out in my head is that part like um where they deliver pizza backstage and like Dee, Dee Ramone's like, Oh, pizza. Like, like I want some. And, and then the, the manager's like, Oh no, Dee, Dee you need to eat, or Joey, like you need the wheat germ. And, and like, and I was like, this is how I remember the Ramones just kind of quirky and fucking weird. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Um, were you into like, any of that Chicago metal stuff that was happening too? Cause there's like a huge underground metal scene around that time as well. Right. Or is it just too underground? No. Well, it existed um, in my mind only from the the weekly entertainment magazine or e- there was a weekly um, magazine called The Reader and then there was Illinois Entertainer, which is the monthly. And I just remember seeing like all, all those names um, before I was able to go to shows. I remember seeing like there was Abomination and Devastation and um, uh, there's a band called Not Us, they, Demented Ted, The Plague, like all these bands, this they were always playing like metal clubs and they were, then they were playing with like hardcore bands too. They were like crossover kind of thing. Um, so I think, well, there's an impulse manslaughter, I think, oh, right. They were like, they were kind of crossover impulse manslaughter for sure. And yeah. And 
you know, that drummer, you know, Glenn Herman, the drummer for Impulse Manslaughter, was responsible for getting a lot of the local punk bands on his college radio show, which is WNUR. And he, he, I found out about a ton of old Chicago punk and hardcore bands from him. Like he was rad, like, like, uh, cause he was so submerged in, in like that whole, like Bhopal stiff screeching weasel scene, but he was also like, you know, hanging out with devastation, which uh, also, yeah. which is, this is also mind blowing. The fact that I didn't know Pat Buckley who played drums in devastation was in the vindictives and I didn't realize they were the same drummer Whoa. like and then went on to play with me when I was in the methadones like years later and I was like <laughs> I just had no idea but it was like full circle you know like I know I'm jumping around a lot but like yeah like fucking like just full circle um um the fact that those scenes kind of melded you know like they people were kind of dipping in and out of like these scenes it was fascinating to me because it made me realize like Oh, I don't have to like one thing. I could, everyone's part of this weird outcast kind of like scene, you know, like the punk hardcore metal thing. Yeah. Like I, I I'm obsessed uh, with, you know, and I've, I've, I've punished you about this shit before, but I'm obsessed with Chicago specifically, obviously the DIY punk hardcore metal scene. And as, as starting in the late eighties into the nineties, where it just feels like, you know, like you look at that, uh, that uh, the fungus among us yes. comp and you look at like the fact that you've got like only the strong on there and martine put it out and screeching weasels on there and i think bubble stiffs are on there too or gear yep you're, um, you're all, all of those and 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 you can't forget vermicious canids are on that comp and vermicious canids is guy atchison that famous tattoo artist singing for that band um See, I had no idea about this. Yeah, this is yeah like like and it, a guy I, it's funny because i brought it up to guy once and he was he almost seemed slightly embarrassed or he didn't want to talk about it at all. Like he was just done. But, um, um, but yeah, so I never, I wouldn't, I would never brought it up, you know, after seeing them after that, but um, um, yeah, that, that comp, like that comp is really good, you know, like for what it is like, yeah, yeah it was, it was such a legendary comp. Yeah. And it just feels like Chicago more than, you know, more than New York obviously has all these sorts of things going on at the same time, but it feels like everyone's spread out and they don't really interact in the same way. Everyone's kind of like coexisting in Chicago. Yeah. And, and that, that sums it up. And I really attribute that to like being smack dab in the middle of the two coasts. You know, it's like there were bands, Nick and Reagan, especially were really tight with the East coast, like the discord contingency, you know, like government issue. And but then like West Coast, you kind of have like a little bit after the Naked Ray Gun like had started and play and developed their fan base, you know, Screeching Weasel got on Lookout and then they had the West Coast covered. Mm -hmm. And then that brought so like the pop punk side of Chicago was like more West Coast. And then, yeah, like then like that, that kind of like that blue collar peg boy, Naked Ray Gun, Bhopal Stiffs big black, you know, like that was to me, like in my head, I always associate it with like East Coast, you know. Um, but yeah. it was great to be exposed to, to both, the, both sides of it. Yeah. It's just like, it's so awesome that like, there are these, all these weird permutations. There's also like, uh, like the touch and go stuff that's happening as well. And like the, the, the more grindy stuff and like the, it's just, it's, it's just such a, a vibrant scene, but like, where did you kind of go after acquiring this, you know, this tape and kind of getting thrust into it? Like what were or some of the first like concerts you went to. It doesn't even have to be punk. Oh, I mean, my first. So 
My first show ever, I was like six years old, and it was Kenny Rogers and Minnie Pearl at the Grand Ole Opry. My, <laughs> That's awesome. Like, I grew up in a very, very Italian neighborhood, and my family were just, yeah, we we're 100% Italian, but my dad loved country music, and he had passed away when I was really young, but right the year before he passed away, he brought us to Nashville to see this concert. And I remember thinking like, <laughs> what is this? Like, what are we doing here? Like I was too young to like really appreciate it. Um, and now it's like, you know, like what an amazing show in Nashville, like to see that. Yeah. Um, but then years after that, I didn't go see live music until the Bad Brains toured with Leeway. Uh, my first show was the Quickness Tour, like 1989 um, at the Vic Theater in Chicago. I remember like, I remember trying to go to shows prior to this and my, my, I was probably like eighth grade, like the summer between eighth grade and freshman year. And my mm. mom like, wasn't having it at all. Like she was like, no way. Like, and I, I tried to like sneak down to a, a couple of the shows. Like I, I know like Dag Nasty and um, I want to say Dag Nasty and maybe seven seconds played like in, in 1988. So I remember hearing about the show, but I couldn't go. Um, and, um, and then, so once I got down, I definitely snuck down to the bad brain show. I, I, I had this older <laughs> friend who got his license and he, he drove us down there and it was kind of surreal because I, I felt like I was watching my life on a movie screen because so we, he, my friend didn't go to the show. He drops us off me and two other kids, my age, we were probably 12 years old or 13 years old. Um, dude drops us off in Chicago as we're walking to the venue, my friend who, who's on crutches because the dude gets hit by a police officer while skateboarding. The kid, like, like the, cool. the cop ran him over and fucked up his leg and then he sued the like the police department. It was such a mess. But this poor kid's on crutches. This jock like came up to us and punched my friend on crutches like out. He just like for no reason, <laughs> like he was just drunk. Like, or like, I don't know. I don't even know if he was drunk. He just punched him out. And me and my friend Matt, who was with me, we left. We ditched the, my friend Hector, who was on crutches. Like, we left him in the street. And then he he got up on his own accord and found us, at, like, in front of the venue. And he was like, dude, <laughs> like, what the fuck? Like, you guys are dicks. And I was like, I'm, I go, I'm sorry. I, I was scared. I, like, I didn't know what was going to happen. Um, and then we make it into the show. And I remember, like, thinking, like, like it was for sure like old guard, like Chicago punk and hardcore dudes. And then there was me and my buds like hiding in the back of the venue. And I remember like thinking like, like this is amazing, but I'm like terrified. But So I didn't like, I didn't want to get too close to the stage, but like Leeway came on stage and destroyed, you know, at that point they didn't have any fans really in Chicago, but they destroyed so good. And then of course, Bad Brains came on and we're talking like, tail end of when hr was like in his prime right so he was mm -hmm. still like doing backflips and all over the place and I, that that like sealed the fucking deal for me like i i remember leaving that show thinking like i want to go to as many shows as i can like it 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 like it kind of made me want to pick up this this like shitty acoustic guitar that was laying at in my mom's house like my sister at one point my sister thought like oh, I'm going to learn acoustic guitar and she never did. So it, it just sat in our house. Um, and that was the catalyst, to, like make me want to pick up this guitar to learn like power chords and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but then I remember like, so I went to the Bad Brain show and then 
two months following, it was like the Circle Jerks 10th anniversary tour rolled around with the weirdos. And I went to that. And then it was like, you know, Naked Ray Gun, you know, their Nick, Reagan, Naked Ray Gun came out, I think, the January of 1990. So I remember seeing them a bunch like right away. And then, of course, Screeching Weasel did like, um, it, they were had they were broken up in 1989 so they were broken up but they did a reunion show to pay off like debt that they owed like a distributor or something and the show it wasn't i didn't even realize what i was getting myself into the show was insane it, it was this band contraside who they were from elgin illinois and contraside had brian peterson in the band and brian went on to book literally every one of the shows that 88 fingers Louie did <laughs> like at, at fireside he booked the fireside he booked um clubs out in like the western suburbs like so i became really close with brian but it, his band had opened sludgeworth had played oh awesome and weasel was starting a band called the gorgor girls they had opened the show as well and then screeching weasel headlined and um yeah we're talking like boogada 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 era so um again like i, I was just so hooked uh, and I really fell in love with Screeching Weasel at that time too, just because of the the melody that that went behind it. But it was kind of like that snotty kind of like thing Ben had, you know, with his vocals. Mm -hmm. Like I, I really loved that whole like you know, aesthetic, you know. It's funny because I was just talking about it with my brother today, and uh, just like that run of songs and like that run of records that they put out, it's. It, it, you'd be hard pressed to find a band that kind of did that in that era, like just consistently would put out these records where I don't know, they're all these catchy songs, but they all kind of have like an edge to it. And I don't know, there's just like so many classics that came out during that period from them. Well, also like what blew my mind and I didn't realize this until I started, you know, like getting more and more into my own bands, like playing and writing music is like Ben went, from or screeching weasel in general went from their first record which was basically a hardcore record was mm -hmm. like you know him more or less screaming and under some melody and then boogada 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 is so melodic and he wasn't off key <laughs> like he <laughs> like he was a pretty good singer for like late 80s you know pop punk and i that kind of like it occurred to me like maybe even i don't know like maybe a few years into 88 fingers louis like oh man like how like he just had it in him, like the just like that that pop sensibility, you know. Like I was always kind of blown away by that, because even you can go back to that record and it still kind of holds up, you know. Like the production, it's not like first class production, but the songs are still so good, and his vocals sound great for like that time, you know. Yeah, like it's interesting to think about what would have happened if they hadn't kind of like, you know, sat out that huge explosion, you know, because they they really kind of like you know by by ninety four you know they're they're kind of like not touring and then that the record kind of comes out but like if they had kind of toured and tried to like you know be present during that part of the 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 ascent like what would have happened like it, it's because they they just kind of like stop again yeah and i think that was that was pretty frustrating on um you know with like like i, I grew to be like pretty close with dan schaefer dan you know dan vapid mm -hmm. and um john jughead of course um I think it was a pretty frustrating time for those dudes because Ben suffered from agoraphobia. You know, yeah, he didn't want to tour. Um, and he was kind of in and out of like breaking the band up or getting different members. And it was, yeah, it was kind of a rough, a rough time for those guys. And they were the band that was supposed to be the band that explodes. Yeah, that that kind of waves the Chicago flag globally, you know, before uh before like 88 
and alkaline trio and slapstick you know like did it they were mm-hmm. going to be the band to do it and then it just kind of halted yeah it's interesting you know, like i talked about this too with tim where like until you know really until like you know rise against and fallout boy and alkaline trio and like you know now it's like this is where you know all a lot of the big punk bands came out of but like prior to that you know it's like bands that you know obviously naked ray guns incredible but never really become like huge huge and same with screeching weasel but it's interesting how eventually kind of post this 90s diy explosion you're like your wave of bands are the bands that take chicago punk to that sort of international waving the flag all over the world level yeah it, it, it's funny because i remember i think what what gave prior to like rise against i remember what what gave 88 fingers louis that that bump up in like quote unquote status was we took the leap of faith and sent fat mike our demo and because he put an ad in it maximum rock and roll he's like all the good bands are signed if you think you're a good band send me your demo because i'm going to start my own label and at the time i was like fully i just i had just discovered no effects and i remember thinking like these these guys are like equal parts screeching weasel and bad religion and i i fell in love with no effects immediately um and I remember thinking like, oh shit, I need, I need to like, see, you know, see if he'll, he'll like the band. Cause 88 was obviously very influenced by no effects and, and that whole like scene. Well, I guess back then it was like, what good lag wagon and, and no effects. Like cause the other bands weren't even signed to fat. And I sent him this shitty demo that master genie recorded for at Sonic Iguana. And he wrote me back like a week later. And I remember like opening my mom's mailbox and, and, like there was this note and it said like, there was like a fat records, like, um, like his stamp with the address on it. And I was like, Oh shit. Like he wrote back and this is insane. And he was like, Hey, yeah, I want to do a seven inch. And I was, I was kind of like thinking like, well, this is it. You know, this is like our big, our big break, you know, but at the end of the day, it wasn't like the biggest break, but it definitely gave us the start of our little, our little career because we went on to do like, you know, those couple seven inches and, he didn't like our demos enough to do a record, but he definitely pointed us in the, the direction of hopeless records. And he got us and that, that, that allowed us to break out of Chicago and go to Europe. You know, like I remember at the time we were like one of the, the first bands outside of like naked Ray gun to go to Europe. I mean, we're talking like January 94. And then it gave us the opportunity to play, as you know, like uh, Canada, like Toronto, Montreal, Quebec. Um, Cause I, you know, Padge from Greenland, like I called because he he knew, you know, he knew we were on fat records. He wanted to get us up there. So it definitely it definitely gave us our, our little start. Um, but I do remember like as 88, like we did our thing and we put out our records. But I remember when we broke up, I was like, I was thinking like, that's it. I will never I'll never be as big as 88 was <laughs> and, and like. And I don't even mean like from like a like an ego thing. I just meant like like my goal was to try to live off the band. So, so I could, you know, be a full-time musician. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of like, we were starting to do that with 88 and I was just kind of crushed. I was like a little bit torn. And, and I had mentioned before, like that, that, that kind of like point, whether do I continue with music or not? And then rise against was definitely the leap of faith. And I, I mean, fully admitted, we definitely rode the coattails of 88 when we started. I mean, that's why we ended up on that snow jam tour before we had a record out, you know, like Padge, 
Pedzl is he's I remember him him calling me and he's like, Oh, against all authority can't make the tour. I know you have this new band. Like, do you want their slot? And I was like, we had no business being in that slot because we weren't opening and we didn't have a record out, but we we definitely did that that tour um as a band that nobody really knew. Um but there was so crazy. much well, I, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but there was just so much excitement around you guys before you even formed. Like I remember you know, yourselves and Kid Dynamite were like the two bands kind of around almost the same time where like there was just this anticipation, like there are these new bands that have come out of these old bands and it's going to be, it's going to be something. Yeah. Just from a fan's perspective, I mean. Oh, definitely. And you're, you're right. There, I, there, I remember like talking to Dan Yeeman about when he was starting Kid Dynamite and, and just feeling like we're definitely in the same boat and we, we were, we were so like determined to like make it work, you know, cause we're like, fuck it. Everyone, this, the new band, the quote unquote new band never works out. And then of course <laughs> people end up getting back together with their old bands. And it's like, at the time we were like, no, like we're like, we didn't want to do that. Like, um, and so I had, you know, I think we, we all had a lot of encouragement from one another, a lot of support, um, which helped. Um, yeah, I, I, I definitely like, I pedal the rise against demo like out as much as I could to all, all of my touring friends, like, you know, like East coast buds and, and, uh, West coast buds. Um, and I, even, even like when we were shopping, like the rise against demo, like fat Mike didn't want to do it at first. Like he was like, it's like, dude, like, I'm sorry. Like I'm not really that into it. And then, and I was kind of crushed. Cause I was like, Oh man, like, like this is like our last hope. Cause we sent it to victory and nitro and epitaph and um, I think we we didn't send it to hope. Yeah, we didn't send it to hopeless because of the weirdness after ADA had broken up and the relationship I had with hopeless at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like, and then I remember telling Mike, just give it a month, keep listening to it. I don't, like, if it doesn't grow on you, then then like uh, like fair enough. Like uh, like uh, I you know no hard feelings. And he actually called me back, and he's like. You're right. I, I love it. Everyone at Fat loves it. Like, I got want to do it. And I was like, holy shit, it works. <laughs> like I, I actually convinced them. Like, <laughs> and getting Fat Mike to admit he's wrong. That's like that's like winning the lottery shit. Oh, oh 100 <laughs> percent. I, I mean, you're talking like a dude. Everyone always asks me, like, what's your biggest influence on bass? And it is for sure Fat Mike. You know, when I was growing up, I, I learned how to like to write chords that that were inversions chords that weren't just power chords from listening to no effects records and i learned like little bass tricks from listening to to no effects and and mike's playing it's like and he knows it he'll poke fun at me still like to this day like but um but uh yeah like i mean such a huge influence so the fact that like he wanted to do the record like i was i was stoked you know and and, but there was definitely like a, a little bit of like a weird a weirdness in Chicago with like, just like, I remember being a little, a little bit like split, like, cause when we formed Tim had his group of friends and then I had my group of friends and we're like a little bit different, like four years difference in age. So like a lot of people thought like the band wouldn't work out. They thought like, you know, we came from two different sides of punk rock and, and even like singing to, to the music that is the first rise against record you know, Tim, Tim wasn't used to singing along to that kind of stuff. And and also like, we were just kind of feeling each other out. Like we were really, we weren't really sure if it was going to work out or not. Um, and then we just kept 
doing it. It was like every month we just kind of kept like, like reaching these little goals, you know, like Mm -hmm. these, these, like we got on a label, we started playing shows, like we found a a solid lineup and then it just, it kept, I think that's why the band works is because we do come from like these two different um, spaces in, in the punk genre, uh, but it, those, the like blending of the two things kind of works out like to our favor. Oh, and it's so weird to kind of like, you know, kind of like explain the nuanced differences between like the two scenes you guys come from. Cause like, you know, both punk hardcore kind of scenes ultimately, but at the same time, like it's amazing how this like once sort of like unified scene and, and Daryl from Beweevils talked about this when he was on eventually just like fractions off into like uh, th- these whole like separate little scenes almost. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. And you know, I remember at the time, those scenes were not supportive of one another, at least from my, my perspective, it was like, there was definitely like this. Okay. Like I was definitely the fish out of water in the pop punk or the melodic hardcore world. I was a straight edge dude. I was kind of like the the only dude that, that kind of claimed like to be straight edge or, or whatever. I just didn't drink. I didn't really go around like Xing up my hands, Mm -hmm. but, um, but then the straight edge scene in Chicago, like those dudes just like, there was like a few of them that I grew to be pretty close with at the time. But a lot of them were just kind of dismissed me because I came from 88 fingers, Louie. Like I came from like the pop punk world. Um, so they, they just didn't want anything to do with me. It was kind of strange. Um, and then it, it kind of made me like, not like that group, you know, like, but, yeah. but like, after the you know years have passed like we you know we're all friends now but like yeah i remember thinking like tim and some not so much tim tim was always pretty like rad like open-minded um i remember just seeing baxter and i remember thinking like oh that that kid who sings for baxter like his voice reminds me a little bit of ian mckay because he could scream but with a pitch to his scream so like when I, when I started Rise Against, like that was what I had in my head. Like I wanted somebody who could scream with the pitch because I wanted aggressive, but I wanted melody. And Tim didn't even pop up in, into my head until like we tried out like, I don't know, like 15 singers when we were starting Rise Against. And I ran into Tim at, it was like Sick of It All AFI Indecision Hot Water Music Tour. Like, okay. and I ran into him at that show. But the sh- it was funny because we were, it was Indianapolis. So we both like had traveled to go to the show. And I remember seeing him and I'm thinking like, Oh fuck, like I got to ask him if he wants to try out. And he was like, sure. Like, like I'll, I'll give it a go. And I gave him a demo of like seven songs and, and that was it. It was like, it was definitely like something cool, like happening, but, but again, it was definitely like some, some uh, growing pains, I think on both sides, you know? Yeah. Who, who were some of the other people that you had auditioned? Like, where were the, were there other like bands that you were kind of like, ah, oh, shit, I, that someone like that before you met Tim? Dude, there, there were so many, so many, like not, I don't want to say like close calls. That's, that's not a good representation. Like I had asked Joe from Fury 66 to try out oh, wow. yeah, and the would... drummer yeah, and the drummer, Joe too, Joe fish, who was in creep division. I asked him to try out for drums and of course, you know, the distance thing and the new band, they were like, oh, we don't, we're not going to leave Santa Cruz and, you know, I wasn't going to leave Chicago. And then at one point I asked, um, um, Mikey D was it Mikey D wait, Mike from turmoil, the drummer for turmoil, who's in digger. Oh yeah. Um, 
I asked him to play drums and he was like, like, no, like, I don't, I don't want to leave, you know, like the East coast. And, and so it was a lot of like those kind of things. Like I definitely went around to my, my, my old friends, you know, to see if anyone wanted to try out. I even asked Dan Schaefer to sing for the band from Screeching Weasel. Cause Dan sang for Sludgeworth and his voice was so, yeah, so sick. amazing. Yeah. Like, but he was, he was pretty timid, like to do it at that point, to do anything outside of something Ben had his name attached to. He was definitely like kind of nervous to get outside that, that like Ben Weasel, like, stra- like stranglehold almost. Um, mm-hmm. So he, he was like, oh, like, no, nah, like, I don't, uh, I'm good. <laughs> Basically, he was like, no. Um, and, and, and then I think at one point I asked Eric who played drums in the, the first drummer, the vindictive to play drums. It was like, I was like all over the map, like, and um, um, so it, it was like a good, probably eight months before we settled on Tim. And then we had a revolving door of drummers, you know, until we found Brandon. Yeah. Was it like, so the whole time you're thinking like, you wanted to kind of do what you had been doing where 88 fingers Louie had gotten to type thing. Like the, the, the idea was like, I want to do a band for real. Like I want to tour this shit. Yeah. And like the goal was to be like an epitaph band, like Pennywise, they were living off the band. Yeah. They were on an independent label and they were doing whatever they wanted, but they had like success, right. They had good dis- distribution for their records. And that was like, <clears throat> that's what I wanted, you know, like, uh, like I just wanted to kind of play, um like the metro in chicago that was like the gold standard it was or like that was like what i was striving to achieve was like to sell out the metro a thousand kids in chicago yeah and like 88 had almost gotten there you know like actually no we did sell the metro out toward the, the end but um yeah like that that was kind of it like i thought like like bands that sold like the metro out they they had it made and and at, at the time they they did you know like because royalties were, records were still selling and bands could sell 20,000 30,000 records and have some decent royalties cuz recording budgets back then weren't that great they were like i don't know like 5 10 grand maybe you know like kind of oh, especially depended. for a punk record yeah absolutely like who who was spending you know 25 grand to record a yeah i remember hearing like I forget it was maybe it was satisfaction is the death of desire like it was scandalous how much had been spent on that record and i'm sure in terms of like what records cost today it would be a small fraction oh yeah yeah like it, it is funny though because when when rise had st- signed a fat <clears throat> that was the start of like budgets creeping into like thirty thousand, forty thousand, even fifty thousand with like those fat rec bands but those bands were established and, and those bands had you know, their, their dedicated fan base. So Mike was pretty comfortable doling out that money, but for us, our budget was, I remember our budget was set at like, I think 20, 20 grand was the cap, but for some reason with like working with mass, I mean, I love, I love mass Georgini. He's, he's awesome. He's such a good dude, but I don't know if it was like the friend factor where we were bullshitting. We spent so much time doing the unraveling. <laughs> we were, we crept into like, dude, I'm not joking. It was like 40 grand or something. Yeah. Um, and, and I remember Mike not being very pleased <laughs> about that, <laughs> but uh, he paid the bill, you know, and, and we just kind of went on our, our merry way. Us and anti-flag were working with mass at the same time and they were on fat as well. And they were also like creeping into like, outside of their budget i th- I think it was just kind of we were just not working <laughs> we were kind of like shoot shooting the shit with mass like most of the day 
Yeah, I remember a band uh, that I was friends with from up here, the Stiffs, uh, that changed their name to Dead Letter Department. But they they spent, I think, all their life savings to go down and record with Mass because that was like the <laughs> the dream is like you know. And I think they spent a lot of the time bullshitting and asking about various bands that had recorded there as well. So yeah, it definitely. Well, that was the sound. Like he he was like the wizard for for getting. I don't know, great sounding records. Like there's so many of his records that I still go back. Even Squirt Gun stuff. I still love listening to Squirt Gun. Dude, Squirt Gun. You know what record? My favorite record that Mass produced was Big in Japan. The first Big in Japan record is so good. It sounds like Elvis Costello. Really? I, I don't even know. Oh, I yeah. Listen to this. Dude, yeah, for sure. Like it's, uh, it's I, I can't remember. They had two records, I think, on Honest Don's, the, that label that Mike was doing. Yeah. Um, yeah. The first record is like it there's like there's not a bad song on the record and the production it sounds like it should it sounds like early Elvis Costello. It's funny when Mike was on the show he talked about how honest Don's he like straight up said like yeah it was for bands that weren't I didn't think were good enough to get on fat and I'm like well there's a lot of really interesting stuff you stuck <laughs> on that label then. <laughs> yeah that that it's like at the time, I remember thinking, like with '88, like, oh, I hope we don't get bumped to Honest Don's, <laughs> like, <laughs> like it's so, it's, it's so shitty, like, but, um, but yeah, like, um, it it, it is funny though, because like back then, when Mike had told me, like, I, I don't want to do the '88 record, and he's like, my friend's starting this label, Hopeless. And I remember thinking, like, Hopeless, like that doesn't sound very encouraging. <laughs> and then Hopeless is like one of the largest indie labels, like to like now, Today. like they're yeah. huge. Yeah, yeah, like um, and and like so, I I definitely owe Lewis from Hopeless like a lot. But um, well, I think you were yeah, the like, I, don't, I don't mean to cut you off on this, but I think you guys were also you know like their ascent was also eighty eight fingers. Louis was the band to me in Canada. That's where I heard about Hopeless from you guys coming here and playing and picking up the comp afterwards. Like I think you know, the two of you guys were growing together. Oh yeah. Yeah. Cause at the time Lewis did gutter mouth and I think he had the white caps, um, yeah. from Fresno. Um, yeah. and, um, yeah, like, yeah, and you're right. They were definitely figuring out their distribution, like as we were growing, um, and, and Lewis, he, he, he just had like such a drive. Like he wanted to be epitaph. He wanted to be fat records and, and, he definitely succeeded like goddamn like i mean the dude signed he has all-time low on the label and he had avenged sevenfold and thrice and it's like just he had a, such vision you know yeah you know it's it's a it's wild when you like look back at how much stuff from that era just like permeates the music industry you know like in in, in like you know how many of these things wound up having like real lasting effect in in still signing bands or, you know, like, as you say, like a bunch of bands on that label are, are like kind of just like mainstream rock bands completely removed from the past that we're talking about. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. I think when our last record came out, Wolves um, all time low had the number one record, like <laughs> in America, like the week our record came out, I was like, God damn it. Like, like this is that good for Lewis and good for all time low. But I was like that, what a, just crazy shift <laughs> like it's just like bizarro world but um yeah i think i think white caps to enter uh shikari shikiri shikari is that enter shikari yep. like that must be the one of the greatest stylistic leaps that has ever happened for a record label oh man oh wait we can't forget schlong uh like schlong, a punk side story classic. that is that is also a really <laughs> under under kind of heralded 
like such a grandiose record. Like I remember hearing that as a kid being like, oh my gosh, the amount of effort that went into this thing. <laughs> Dude, for sure. I remember thinking like, okay, Dave Mello. And I remember th- checking multiple times, like yes. this is the same Dave Mello yeah. from Operation Ivy, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like, yeah, what a, what a kind of bizarre bizarre time like that that late 80s like lookout records and those a lot of those bands like just kind of went on to do like strange but awesome things i mean you have you have like operation ivy and then you have like rancid exploding and and like but then there was schlong and like there was do you remember that band the yeasty girls there was the Yeasty girls like joe i would be lying to you if i said i wasn't sitting here right now looking at a yeasty girls demo (laughs) I love that. Like, <laughs> but but neurosis too, right? Like neurosis on lookout. How fucking wild is that? Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, and I mean, so eclectic. Like that catalog. Um, you know, Larry Livermore definitely had that vision. And then I I remember like when I was you know probably a senior in high school. It was or maybe junior. I don't know. Like it was when Screeching Weasel signed a lookout. I remember talking to Ben at a show and he was selling lookout records at the show. Like he was like, he had like the first rancid seven inch with them. And like, he had like the lookouts like seven inch and, and like just random things. And I was like looking and it started to occur to me like, okay, this label is putting out screeching weasels. So I'm like, I want to find out how to get on this label. Cause obviously they're doing something right. And I, I was so naive and I'm like, Ben, like, I'm Joe, you know, and at the time I was in this band, <laughs> I was in this band called Spoonless. Like we didn't even, like it wasn't, it was before 88 Fingers Louie, like Spoonless was me and Dom, Dom, who was the first drummer of 88 Fingers Louie. And uh, we were terrible. Like we we were kind of like, kind of like pop punk. And then we had like some weird, like funk influences, but like, <laughs> like Minutemen kind of, but I wasn't good enough to play like Mike Watt at all. Like it was yeah. terrible. Um <laughs> And I remember like Ben, I'm like, how did you get on lookout? And he looks at me, he goes, what's the name of your band? I'm like spoonless. He goes, well, you're not going to get on lookout with a name like that. <laughs> and then, and, and then he goes, um, and he goes, if you want to know my secret, I call them up and ask them. And that, and then he ignored me. Like he turned his head and I was like, all right, I get it. I'm going to fuck off now. <laughs> like, well, there's that song, you know, like he, he Ben Weasel is an ass, he's an asshole. Like that is definitely an earned uh, <laughs> song, apparently. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I think I think with Ben, you know, it's like I've definitely had my, um, you know, my my things with Ben. You know, he mm-hmm. you know, over the years, but um, he really is very talented. Is he's very intelligent, and I think he fucks with people in a way it's almost like when someone's ultra smart and they play dumb on purpose, you know, like, like, I feel like Ben kind of had a little bit of that in him, like where he, he was just kind of like snarky, but he, he was always two steps ahead of everybody, you know? Mm-hmm. It was, it's also like, so interesting to kind of think about that band in the relationship to like the early queer core stuff that was happening in Toronto. And then the fact that they also like weirdly have this connection, like, to, to the stuff that's happening with, you know, no effects and, and stuff with fat Mike singing on the records. And then obviously the lookout stuff and the Chicago stuff. Like it is, it is a band that somehow exists in so many different little worlds at once at the same time. 
Oh yeah, and also let I me mean, let's not forget the Riverdales, which was basically three members of Screeching. It was basically Screeching Weasel without Jughead. Mm-hmm. Um, he like they were t- they were like getting courted by majors when they were touring with Green Day. Like they so they were like writing that line of like you know signing when all the bands were getting scooped up or, or, or not signing. And I think at the end of the day, I think I think Lookout ended up paying them a lot of money for like their second album and that's why they ended up not going to like what was green day's label reprise or reprise, something yeah yeah um so yeah like but i remember thinking like wow like riverdale's are on tour with green day they're gonna be huge you know mm-hmm. like and then mm-hmm. and then they they weren't <laughs> but... <laughs> uh, one band that actually dan panic brought up when he was on the show that and he's the only person that ever seems to know about this band from chicago's the feds and not the later feds but like the original feds which was like pre-poster children and, and james from smashing pumpkins was also in the band did you, did you ever see this band oh shit no you know what i didn't even know about that band um yeah it's funny because ken yeah ken from the bull evils was in the later period feds like or like the the, the other feds the other feds yeah um, but um i didn't know about that feds that that that's interesting i mean and what first of all like what a great band the poster children are such yes. a good band <laughs> but yeah. um um also i didn't know dan panic was on your show and i i love dan <laughs> one of the sweetest human beings i've ever met in my entire life like really like such a such an incredible person like such a positive person yeah absolutely i mean dan um dan i remember at the time he kind of like when he joined screeching weasel he kind of ran with like maybe more of like this this hardcore contingency of like I don't want to say like even score, but like, I feel like he hung out with a lot of like dudes from that scene or maybe the guys from gauge that band gauge. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, maybe, maybe you guys talked about it, but I, I just remember thinking like, what a phenomenal drummer. And like, he just kind of slipped into the screeching weasel role and just kind of like blended in and was, he was goofy in his own right. That fit that image that Screeching Weasel was portraying like at the time. Like I, I remember thinking like what a perfect lineup like that. My brain hurts lineup was perfect. Yeah, no, they are, you know, they're an incredible band and like uh, just, yeah, like that era too. Like you're saying, it's just like, I would have killed to see that live. I've watched videos obviously, but you know, it's not the same, but well, uh, oh, go on. Sorry. Oh, I was going to say like, also, when when my brain hurts was blowing up, like Ben, because of his relationships with um, his column, you know, from Maximum Rock and Roll, like so he was friends with like Sam McFeeders and you know, like a, a lot of those East Coast kind of like kind of like crusty hardcore bands, you know, like so I remember like Screeching Weasel would play and Rorschach and and um, Born Against like opened up and he definitely like it exposed me to a lot of music that I, I wouldn't have known about otherwise. Like Ben was definitely good about like kind of making it like these eclectic lineups or these bills, you know? And, and like, so I remember like, I remember thinking like, Oh wait, these guys are all friends, but they sound different. Like I, it was just that kind of thing always appealed to me like that. Like, like, it's not like you have to hang out with bands that sound just like your band. Like, yeah. but it was almost like, a, cause in my head there, it was like a gang, you know, like, but um, but yeah, like it always blew me away that Born Against and Screeching Weasel were so like tight, you know, at the time. Well, that's and that to me, like one of the actually, I'm going to say this: the second weirdest split and coolest document to come out of the '90s in terms of seven inches is definitely that Born Against uh, Screeching Weasel split. Oh, 
it's, it's a genius. The idea behind it was genius. They wrote, you know, they, they wrote lyrics to each other's songs. So good. Yep. Um, and then, yeah, like it, like, like you're right. It, and it just de definitely like it joined those two scenes, like even more so like, um, and it kind of like, it definitely got me down that path of like more like dirty hardcore, like, um, you know, even, even, I mean, we haven't talked about Los Crudos yet, but even yeah. Martin, Martin being so tight with Ben at the time and, and then Los Crudos starting up and then Los Crudos was playing with like Sludgeworth. Like when I first saw Los Crudos, they were opening up for Sludgeworth in the suburbs. And I think at that point they were around maybe like a year because this is like 1991, maybe 92. Um, and I, I remember walking into the venue and they were on stage and I was blown away because I was like, God damn it. Who the fuck is this? This guy's voice is like the perfect hardcore voice. And like, the, and they're from Chicago. <laughs> like, and I, I just, I remember like, I remember as soon as they were off stage, I remember talking to Martin and he's like, oh, we're from Pilsen. We sing in Spanish. This is like what we do, you know? And then we beat, we just, us and like Los Crudos and the, the Bull Weevils, we just became fast friends because we were all playing the same shows, but we came from such different backgrounds. Well, not so much us and the Bull Weevils, but, but Los Crudos for sure. But mm -hmm. it, it made, it made me like realize like, Oh, we could all be friends. Like it's, it's like, there's no division because the styles of music are, are different, you know, like, and I, that's just me being like a naive kid, you know, at the time. Um, but um, yeah, like and, and Martin, actually, I, I attribute like kind of learning about a lot of Chicago punk history from Martin. I mean, the dude has an insane photo collection. He, he shot all the bands at the Metro in Chicago um, at, in the eighties, like that mm -hmm. venue, the, the Metro, um, he, you know, he was, he's, he's got a photography book out. I think it's called, um, what's the name of his photography book? He's got a like, couple actually, I think now there's a, God, I'm trying to remember the most recent one. Um, but yeah, like he's got photo credits on the first Screeching Weasel record, you know, like he's, yeah, yeah, like it's, <laughs> I don't know, like that to me, like earlier you brought up uh, Dan's previous band, I think it's Ivy League. And the fact that like Ivy League used to play with Weed Eater, which is the pre Charles Bronson band. And it's like the pre Screeching Weasel band and the pre Charles Bronson band used to gig together. That's like only in punk. That's why I love this thing so much. Yeah, yeah, I remember we did it. My friend John was in that band. Uh, this John, I met John through skateboarding, and he didn't tell me he was in a band. And I remember going to the, this club McGregor's that that were they were like the club, that was the club to go to like when I was in high school. Um, and Weed Eater was on stage. I remember looking up thinking like, oh, fuck, that's John, the dude I skate with. Like, <laughs> it was like blowing my mind. Like, um, but yeah, like, like Weed Eater, Ivy League, um, um, there was Billingsgate, like those, those bands definitely played together a lot. Billingsgate um, becomes D4, you know, like once again, yeah. another, like, like, so, you know, it's also weird, like, it's just, it's amazing to kind of like think about all these people being in a room that probably didn't have more than like, 200 people at most in it at any given time yet these you know yourself included like these are the people that are kind of creating the punk that kind of goes all over the place in the next wave well yeah like and you know what happened so metro stopped doing punk shows in like mid 80s because it was so violent at the time and um there was a big riot at one of the shows and i remember joe shanahan like the owner of the metro he was like fuck this this isn't worth it punk's not a, like they're not welcome here anymore. 
And um, and then it, it, a lot of the shows went to like the Vic Theater, but it was bigger than the Metro. So anything smaller just went to to the like various VFW halls or like then the sports bar in Elmhurst, Illinois, McGregor started doing shows. It was like uh, this dude, Matt Nelson, who was really tight with Ben Weasel, that they were getting shows like Matt kind of used Ben's connections and it became like the place to go to. So it was like, it went from the Metro to, to the suburbs. Um, and then, and then you would get this, this kind of like strange mix of like, like Green Day played there, you know, with like, a, uh, I want to say a kind of Christ. I'm pretty that sure is, they were. Tour- they tour together. That's a, that's a tour. I'm pretty sure it, it was either. Wait, I'm I, okay. Let me let me let me think back to my my uh, my um, <laughs> old man brain is like like you know I'm dusting the cobweb, cobwebs off. Uh, it's only because like Connor Christ. Or, oh, go on, oh go ahead. I was going to say Connor Christ to me are like one of the best bands of that era, and so that to me is anytime a Connor Christ is mentioned, uh, I'm unfortunately it's like one of those dog whistle words for me. Like I'm pretty sure either Citizen Fish toured with Green Day at, at this club, or it, it was. It was Econochrist and Citizen Fish. But then I also, I want to say Econochrist played with Jawbreaker at the venue too. It was all these like East Bay bands, mm-hmm. you know, they would always just go out together. Um, and of course, they all knew Ben because Weasel was on lookout. And then they would kind of like hang around town or like, you know, like stay stay in Chicago somewhere. Or or there was like Underdog Records and, and they had a loft space. A lot of the bands would stay at Underdog Records. Um which, by the way, like, again, what an amazing collective for that time, you know, like uh, underdog records. And they they just allowed anyone to to attend their weekly meetings. Like, so I would go with the Bullweevils to like these meetings that underdog records had. And I remember thinking, like, this is it. I've made it like like <laughs> like all this punk rock, like lo- like royalty, you know, like and then I'm, I'm here, you know, like, I was so stupid. But like, I remember feeling like pretty pretty hot shit at the time <laughs> well it is it is like a who's who of of chicago bands at that time like you know Wait, like i'm on- gonna blow your mind this is this will blow your mind yeah i remember rob roy who who was he was in a band called self-help mantra from chicago um he lived at the underdog records loft and he was like hey my um like at that time 88 i want to say 88 fingers um was it was right when Mike released the 88 seven inch with Propagandi seven inch and um, Rancid seven inch. He released those three at the same time. And um, so Rob's like, Hey, you're, you're friends with Propagandi. I'm like, yeah. Like, like we talk on the phone. I remember talking to Chris Hanna, like a lot, like on the phone at the time. And um, they're like, Oh, their, their, their friend Todd is going to be in town looking at art schools. And it was, it was Todd from I Spy, who's yeah. now in Propaganda. I remember hanging out with Todd. Like, I showed him around Chicago for, like, two days. And then we just <laughs> went on to be, like, really good friends. Like, it was just such a small world. Like, I mean, we're talking, like, Todd was probably, like, fucking 17 at the time. And same with me. Like, we were just young kids, you know? Like, it was yeah. amazing to maintain those friendships after all, all these years. Well, it's funny. Like, uh, Moby was on, and he's talked about how he, he hasn't made a single friend since he was in punk rock is what he said like <laughs> and i kind of like i'm like yeah it's weird how you know i don't really keep in touch with 
anyone I went to school with, like high school with, I don't really keep in touch with many people I met in other jobs that I've had, but random kid I met at DIY space, you know, in Toronto when I was 14, you better believe that he and I still message. Oh, dude. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it's like real, it's real family, you know, yeah. like it, it, there's, it's like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade that for, for anything, you know, it's like, but even like, even for instance, like our, the first time 80th fingers really played Toronto, it's like, I'm, I'm pretty sure you had mentioned you were there maybe yeah, at the opera house. You guys played, uh, yeah, I'm trying to remember who opened, uh, Hev's duties. Maybe I think it was Hev's duties. It, it, it was, it was. Cause I remember that was when we played with Montreal. We played with uh fair warning that the drum band with the blind drummer. What? That's gotta be one of their last shows too. It, 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 it was for sure. It might've been their last show. Cause I remember it was on new year's Eve and I remember Padge put us together and, and reset was opening as well. Reset was on the show. Pretty simple plan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, like, and I remember thinking like, Okay, reset was rad. They at that you know that band at the time reminded me of like Pennywise or whatever, and then Fair Warning was cool in their own right. But I remember it took me and Dennis from Media Fingers Louie like a little while to realize that the drummer was blind, mm -hmm. and I was like, oh my god, like this is amazing. Like this dude is so good. Like um, I was just blown away by it. Like there's definitely something like I'd never forgotten. Like. Um, but yeah, like, so, but those relationships, it's like Johnny Bordenko booked that show in Toronto and Jill Heath. And then of course, how insane, like my mind was blown when Jill's like, oh, I put out the articles of faith in this life record on Lone <laughs> yeah. Wolf. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, what the fuck? Like, yeah, Jill, oh, man, Jill is like a white whale guest for this podcast. Like I bought her negative approach test press offer through an intermediary source a couple years ago and i was really hoping she just like i'm like yo tell her to get back in touch because i would just like yeah like here's someone who booked all the misfit shows when they came through you know like it was like buddies with them buddies with sam hayne took photos in the first youth of today record took you know <laughs> like roadie for for rollins and flag like just like she is someone that uh i don't know like it would make would make uh even even the most hardened punk look like a poser by comparison. Oh, for sure. And what a fucking treat for me to realize she worked on warp tour and the first warp tour we did, it's like, I had a friend on the tour. Like I was like, Oh my God, thank God you're, you're here. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, yeah. Like it, it was, it was, it's definitely like she, I remember she told me, and maybe I'm getting this wrong, but when the, when the articles of faith recorded in this life, something was like something happened with like the symbols on the drum tracks and virus X, the drummer had to re-record all the cymbal hits separately, like for, with the drums, like, which in my head, that's like, that just doesn't compute. I'm like, how, how, like, cause you're going to get cymbal bleed, obviously. Yeah. So then I try. I went back and listened to the record after she was talking about it. And I was like, I don't, I can't tell if it's weird or not. Cause that record is, their record is definitely because Bob Mould produced it. It's definitely mixed, very that that higher high range that Husker Du had on all their records. You know, all trebly and cymbaly. That that's how in this life kind of sounds. So I'm mm -hmm. like, well, it's either Bob Mould or it's Virus X recording the cymbals over overdub <laughs> overdubbing <laughs> the cymbals. Like I don't know, but anyway, <laughs> that's wild. Uh, going back to what you were talking about, Underdog, like 
you know, like you're saying how, like, you felt like you were in the who's who of, of punk being that, but like, you kind of are, you know, like screeching weasel, obviously, but like cap and jazz is on that label, like eight bark who, you know, but weevils, like, it's just like, it's like a really awesome label and impulse manslaughter too. Yeah. Oh, and Glenn Herman from impulse was at every one of those meetings, like with us. Cause he was definitely like there to fucking support. Like, uh, I also like, I don't know if like my mind, I, I don't know if I'm getting this wrong. I'm pretty sure Glenn had a pop punk band called, and I, this is the strangest name you'll ever hear. <laughs> Squidly diddly spot. Don't eat that. He, that that's a band name. And Glenn was in that band. You have to like, look, I don't know if you'll find it in on the a Google search, but like it definitely existed. <laughs> like, Did they record. I've never heard of this. I'm I'm without a doubt they had a demo. I don't know. Okay, so there's my friend Dave Hoffa does uh, DuPage Hardcore. Um, it's a website, and he, he literally he puts bands demos on this website. It's du, DuPage Hardcore. Either it's .com or uh, if you Google search this, you'll find it. But the, the demo might be on there. But he has demos from fucking everybody like there was a bank called flea circus that never really did a record he's got the flea circus demo up there he's got oh they're on Metal chicago band. i think yeah flea circus you're right they are they they, they have that song skank minnow <laughs> yeah because i think they're the opening track on the thing that's why i knew that's the only reason i think they pop out to me because they're also like yeah as you're saying like one of the more obscure bands on that comp when you really start diving into like where all the different members went up to went on to yeah, it's funny because Flea Circus were part of the generation of like, like Dan, Dan Vapid had the band Generation Waste. And so it's the era like kind of when Screeching Weasel was starting like 80, 86, 87. And mm -hmm. then these dudes had like these crossover thrash bands and, and Generation Waste was part of that scene. Um, um, you know, Flea Circus, they were more punk, but like they were definitely part of that era. Um it's funny because like in my head there's like these eras of chicago punk so there's like naked ray gun which is early 80s mid 80s and then of course they became like the kings of chicago and then after that as you get like bopal stiffs and id under which was doug doug from eight bark's band before eight bark mm -hmm. id under was fucking phenomenal they were on walk through fire records um they also have an lp on underdog too right i think a blue they, cover yeah Yep. Yeah. Okay. They, yeah. And that that record is awesome. Yes. They were so underrated. Um, uh, but then, um, but yeah, and then so there's that that generation of bands, and then those bands imploded, and then bands, the Bowievals popped up. 88 Fingers Louie had just started. Eight Bark started. Smoking Popes just started. You know, it's like, um, it, it, yeah, it was no empathy. Well, no empathy, kind of like spanned all these genre or all these eras they started pretty early in the 80s and mm -hmm. they kind of carried throughout like the early 90s but um but yeah like um so i remember like going going back to underdog records is like 88 had just started i had just befriended the the boy evil dudes like um maybe no actually that's not true i became with the boy friends with the boy evils before 88 existed because that's how i know dennis from 88 was through daryl from the bull evils like uh they, they had mutual friends um but anyway so I, I hung out with the bull evil dudes 
with my old band Spoonless, which never went anywhere. And I have a demo of it, but I will not give it to you. Come on, <laughs> I gotta hear it, this it, thing. <laughs> it's so it's so embarrassing. Um, but um, but yeah. Anyway, like so, I met a lot of these dudes prior to 88 fingers louis like these dudes in the in the chicago scene so they were daryl and ken from the bull evils and bob their old bass player um we all just hung out every day skateboarded went to shows and then they were like hey let's go to underdog records because they're doing like weekly meetings anyone could go it's a collective you know so you could go and as just hey i learned how to screen print my our own you know my own shirts at, at the underdog loft print our seven inches our covers. Um, and then Doug, who was in ID Under, who was starting Ape Arc right around this time, he was kind of like this visionary with like, like he was just super creative and how to run the label and how to, how to like get distribution. I think they they eventually scored like distribution through More Damn Distribution, which mm -hmm. was the, the big independent you know distributor at the time. Um, and he kind of like showed us the way he, he kind of like helped us get shows or like introduced us to just a lot of people. And then also around the same time, like we discovered Attica studios, recording studios, which was Chuck Uchida, who was in, this is, I'm like all over the place, but Chuck Uchida this was in gold. a band. Don't called worry. The, this is amazing. No, like Chuck is amazing in his own right. Chuck was in a band called the Defolians from Chicago um, they were, he owned a club called Dreamers, which Dreamers was the first Fugazi show. Chuck booked them at Dreamers. It was Youth of Today, Judge and Gorilla Biscuits tour. It was like Life <laughs> Sentence, you know, played there. Yeah. It, it was, that was definitely like the late 80s venue. Um, so Chuck owned Dreamers and then he went on to own this bar, Clubfoot. And then Chuck ended up joining No Empathy uh, after Defoliance imploded. Um, but Chuck also had this little four track recording studio and us, the bow evils, like when I say us, I mean, 88 fingers, Louie, we recorded our first seven inch there. Uh, the bow evils, you know, recorded there. Um, it was like, he was, I mean, th the fact that he could get these sounds with a four track and he kind of learned from like Steve Albini, you know, it's throughout the eighties. It was like, that blew my mind. The fact that I was sitting with a guy like Chuck and, and, my first kind of real band recording. Like I just, I learned so much from that whole like scene and everyone was so willing to help. Like it mm -hmm. really was an, an amazing time. And then, you know, it's like, um, yeah, we kind of, at some point we wanted to, to like break out of the local thing and get bigger. And, and then we, we kind of tried to follow screeching weasels footsteps. Um, but yeah, Underdog, Underdog kind of saw things globally because they took on, that was like, they took on a Book Your Own Fucking Life for one of those years. They sponsored Book Your Own Life. It was Underdog Records and my friend Jason, who did Rocco Records, like they was like kind of like a joint effort to sponsor Book Your Own Fucking Life, uh, touring resource, you know, magazine that, that Maximum Rock and Roll did. And uh, of course, Rocco Records had like the 88 Fingers Louis 10 inch. They, they put that out. And um, the, the but split it, with I, Bo Weevils too, right? They did. Or no, is that a different? Yes. A different, oh, they do that. Uh, they do no, that. they did uh, Viva Viva Chicago. Viva yeah, Chicago, it was yeah. like us. Yeah. Um, but and Jason, I mean, 
it was literally like it was just him out of his mom's basement you know like for Rocco Records and we all kind of took on the data entry duty to to do like the book your own I remember like like doing data entry for book your own fucking <laughs> life was bananas it was literally like snail mail everyone sending in like the, like promoters sending in their venue information and bands sending in like PO PO boxes or addresses like how, how you can get a hold of this band and organizing them by like like city and state and like oh man it was it was so much work um and to this day like I'll never forget like we're I mean literally we were working until like 6 a.m every night trying to like get this done um but that's that's an, another resource on me branching out of Chicago and meeting that's how I met Rancid was through book your own fucking life you know and, and it's like we ended up 88 fingers Louis and, and the Boyles ended up playing with Rancid in, in uh like South Carolina um Atlanta Georgia like and this was like before let's go came out so like we were like fast friends when we met those dudes and it was all because of book your own fucking life so mm -hmm. it's kind of like just full circle like a lot of these like all, all these roads that like I followed um, with labels and bands in Chicago, all, all seem to kind of meet up in one spot, like at some point, like it, it was it really, it was just kind of crazy. Yeah. It's amazing to think how, like, you know, the, the goals were obviously very modest back then, especially with book your own fucking life. Like it was never about trying to change the world in any sort of, you know, musical sense, but like kind of did like, you know, the fact that like, there's all these bands that are, you know, once again, like just building their own thing and that eventually would become, you know, worldwide phenomena. Well, yeah. And, and, and that, that to me, okay. So going through a book, your own fucking life, you got a sense of what each scene was bringing to the table. What like, you know, Canada in general was bringing like, like me mm. getting turned on to, well, actually not, not through book your own fucking life, but I, it made me realize like, you know, SNFU and Daigle abortions and, you know, uh, pointed sticks from Vancouver, you know, like no means no. <laughs> yeah. That kind of made me realize like, okay, all, all these cities, all these countries, all, they all have something to offer, which in my opinion, I, I actually talked about this on Zach's podcast. Um, I like the idea of like a local sound like it it doesn't exist anymore at least at least from my perspective it's like like you knew what a band was into if they were from chicago you could pick up on naked ray gun or screeching weasel or or you know or if you're from winnipeg you could pick up on snfu or whatever um it, it it's like like i feel like a little that's a little lost right with the with the and i hate to sound like this old kind of grumpy dude but like you lose a little bit of that because everything is instantly global. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I don't think, you know, I think it, you're right because it has changed, right? Like you don't need to necessarily rely on the people around you. Like having, it's interesting having people on the show that kind of grew up post, obviously, internet becoming everything in our lives. Um, just how different they kind of look at it where there's like, you know, people that have come on the show where their scene is like all over the world. Like there's kids in different cities that they kind of gravitated to. And like, it's no longer geographically based in the same way it used to be. And like, yeah, you certainly do lose that, that sort of local sound because you don't really have, you know, the one record store that's piping all the same records to these kids or that one local band that everyone goes and sees every week that kind of influences everyone. Like, yeah, it, it has changed. 
Yeah, like, I mean, I was lucky enough to be to go to Wax Tracks Records weekly. Every Saturday, I would go to Wax Tracks and buy records, and they were always playing. Of course, they were playing Chicago records, you yeah. know, like old, old bands. And and I, re I remember thinking, like, like, th like this, this, that's like what I look forward to every week. And I remember thinking, like, I need to be a part of this more and more. Like, I want to be... I, like I want to be like involved. Like I want to work at a record store. Of course, I never ended up doing that, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I, I just, I love that culture. I love the record store culture and I love finding out. Of, I mean, that's how we all found out about bands, right? Like you go to a record store, you're flipping through records. You see who those bands are thinking on the back sleeve of the record. Uh, you see what shirts the bands are wearing in their photos. Um, I fucking loved it. Like I, I, that, I, that's how I found out about so many bands. Yeah. What, did Peter Sotos work at wax tracks? You know, that guy from white house. Heard of that oh, too? you know what? Um, if he did, I, I, that was like, I was totally ignorant to it. Um, I remember there was a band from Chicago called 77 luscious babes. Okay. That dude who, who we called red, that dude worked there. And I, I want to say he came from the band flea circus as well. Maybe. Okay. okay. Um, but that I, I when I would go to Wax Tracks, that dude was always there. <laughs> yeah, I think if it, if he was working there, better to avoid him. I, I think he'd be more than the curmudgeonly record store guy. I think he would take it to another level from oh. judging by the 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 art that he makes. Otherwise, and artists right. use very loosely to, to describe it. <laughs> <laughs> um, it it is uh, I've kept you forever, by the way, Joe. And anytime you want to come back on this show, you know that you are always welcome here. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I would I would love to. I, I'm a talker, so I would love to. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But before I let you go, I've got a couple more questions. If that's OK. Yeah, for sure. Well, earlier I said that um, the Screeching Weasel Born Again split was the second weirdest document to emerge in form of split seven inch from 90s punk and hardcore. Uh, the number one weirdest by far is the 88 Fingers Louie Philocracy split. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, what's interesting about that split. We, we did not know that band at all. Like yeah. it was, um, not many people a, do. <laughs> yeah. Like it, it was, um, it was proposed to us by, um, Rots distribution. Rots was a distributor in Chicago and me and Ken from the Bow Evils work there. And, um, they had pitched this idea of doing a split with Canadian bands. And so we did it with, um, with Philocracy and, and Bow Evils did, did it with, you probably remember more than I would. They did a split with a Canadian band as well. Ripcords. Um, yeah. Ripcords. Thank you. Yes. From Montreal. Yes. Um, so that came about from us working at Rots dis distribution. Um, cause, cause, um, that that was it, that was like my my foot in the door with like remember I said before I wanted to work at a record store well I got a job at a, at a distributor <laughs> like so that that's that's what we did and then I got fired from said distributor um, from just being stupid I I I had this is a funny story actually it was the day uh, No Effects Punk and Drubla came out I think I want to say Offspring Smash came out the same time mm -hmm. and maybe rancid let's go it was like three huge <laughs> records coming out the same week and there were so many fucking orders from and i had misshipped 
two boxes, huge orders. I mixed up the invoices and I shipped them to the wrong record stores and I got fired. <laughs> so I always tell Mike, like I got fired because of no effects, but yeah. You know. Blame it on Mike. That's what I say. That's, that's yeah, the motto around here. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, it, it's funny because like that, that band philocracy, that's how, that's how we're connected other than friendship, Joe, because you realize that's pre-career suicide. Jonah from fucked up's other band. Are you serious? I yeah. had no idea. The original drummer of Career Suicide, that was his band, Philocracy. And they are they are very obscure in terms of Canadian bands. And that thing <laughs> has always blown my mind. Like Ripcords, they were like a touring commodity. Philocracy, you know, uh, an interesting band put a, a, a great 10-inch and another 7-inch as well. But uh, yeah, always that is one of the... I, I love that record for no other reason than it is just like even more than the screeching was born against record like a, a marriage that should not exist but yet somehow does because of punk <laughs> yeah that that was um that was cool it was cool that for that distributor the, the the two owners it was a husband and wife team that owned it and it was the wife's idea and i remember thinking like yeah this makes sense like this is cool like like expose the two scenes to, to one another like um so she, she, she was really, really good about that. Um, I just remember like working at this distributor and Ken and I were in this basement, Ken from the Bull Evils. We were in this basement working like super long hours, always, you know, um, getting paid probably minimum wage, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. um, and, but we were like surrounded by, remember there was that band, the Richies. I think they were from Germany. Yeah. They sound like the Ramones, right? Exactly like the, the Ramones. And their whole vibe was being like the Ramones. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, it, we were surrounded by Richies records and the sperm birds, which is, I think Steve <laughs> Martin's band. I think <laughs> I'm trying to remember who was in the sperm birds, but I definitely no, know the records. Or was Steve Martin and spud monsters. I'm totally confused. Steve Martin's or, and spud Strong monsters. Dogs. And uh, straw dogs, straw dogs. You're right. <laughs> but sperm birds, I think, are from Germany as well. Yeah. Okay. So that makes sense because the the husband and wife that owned the distributor, they were German, so they had a lot of German <laughs> records. That makes sense now. <laughs> they were going to corner this market by introducing the German punk bands to the uh, Chicago market. That was the. the <laughs> For sure. <laughs> uh, uh, the other split that also I think is fascinating too is that Bo Weevil's 88 Fingers Louie Funeral Oration NRA split. Um, just because I, I think, you know, I, I also love that that Amsterdam scene from the same time with Funeral Oration and NRA. And like, you know, sonically, it's like, you know, two scenes that are definitely rooted in hardcore, but like both bands are kind of, or both sets of bands, I should say, are taking that sort of like melodic approach to it. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And like I, I just, I'd like to say, like Funeral Oration were, were such a unique band, and for Hopeless to have the vision to sign them, um, like they, no one sounded like that singer. I think his name was Peter. Um, and I remember the first European tour, 80th Fingers Louis did. It was like January of '95. We toured with Funeral Oration, and I remember they were so like inexperienced, but they were, they've been, obviously they've been a band since like what the mid eighties or early four. I think they started 83, maybe even insane, <laughs> but, but they were so inexperienced with playing live, like, and do it like having like, like banter on stage and moving around. Like they were so stiff. And I remember at one point the bass player, his name slipping my mind. Um, 
he was uh, he had like a heart of gold he was such a good guy um mm-hmm. but he would he saw how 88 fingers louie played on interacted on stage and, and kind of had like a little bit of energy and he would bump into the singer of funeral oration to get him to move around like on stage <laughs> like i remember thinking like how how amazing and silly this is but um that that tour that we did ended in in like a a little bit of a like a not it was a little tragic because not bad like no no nothing really bad happened except we 88 fingers louis was leaving sweden um our driver was german didn't really have experience driving a van in snow which has mm. blew my mind he just wasn't that good of a driver we were leaving sweden to catch a ferry to go back to germany to play 10 shows with battery it was like battery's first like like the european tour and um so we we crossed on the ferry no we were on our way to the ferry in sweden um we rolled our van because the guy oh, wow. didn't know how to break in snow. Dennis got hit in the head with like our, our metal, like money box, like the little tin money box that we, we had with us. Mm-hmm. Like, like idiot kids. Like we thought like, Oh, this is secure. It's a, a little shitty tin money, like money box with a crappy lock. Anyone could have just broken it open. <laughs> but like, <laughs> anyway, we thought we were being like, like smart and insecure. But he gets hit in the head and we we canceled the rest of the tour. So we never ended up playing those shows with battery, um, which we still talk about to this day that like with like Brian McTernan, you know, like that. that yeah. we, we just we just missed crossing paths back then. Um, and that and they basically didn't stop touring Germany after that. Like it felt like they were like a band that just would, you know, every time I look through Max Rock and Roll, I'd be like, fuck are they ever going to come to canada they seem to be in germany all the time <laughs> yeah for sure they were definitely one of those bands that latched on to the 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 german only touring <laughs> you know like like yeah. it, it was i mean germany had such a you know strong um i mean they love american hardcore they mm-hmm. loved that whole like scene right so like it was a safe bet to go to europe and come back with a little bit of money at that time Oh yeah. And you'd be fed, you know, like you'd be like, you know, it's a, it's a cliche that everyone talks about, but like, it is definitely uh, a, a lot less grueling, especially in like the late mid nineties than, than, than American touring or Canadian touring. Definitely. Oh, although it, wait, speaking of Canadian touring. So that those first four shows that 88 played um, in 94 in Canada. So we flew into like Quebec and Padge, uh williams that's yeah padge williams uh greenland yeah um yeah like he picked us up in in like uh you know like like uh no no i'm sorry we didn't fly in we drove from chicago straight to quebec that's right and our (laughs) van breaks down in quebec city and we still have montreal or toronto and montreal to play so it was three shows um so we we leave our van in quebec and padge had one of his buddies it was Orion. Orion played in that hip hop band from Montreal. Man of Steel. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> this is a, yeah. this is blowing my mind that I get to talk about all this stuff. Thank you. Yeah. It, it, in insane. Like, um, wait, no, not was it Man of Steel? Um, uh, stealth, because that Stealth was like the thing that Daryl Jennifer was working with. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't Stealth. O- Orion had a hip hop thing called like. Um, he lit, he was Padge's roommate. Oh, no, it wasn't actually. Man of Steel. Man of Steel was like the punk band. There was like, yeah, I, yeah. What is that? And they also were on two one one two records or twenty one twelve records. 
Um, well, any, anyway, Orion from this hip hop band um, and his buddy drove a fucking cargo van to pick us up in the dead of winter in Quebec. And we, we were sitting on a metal floor, like, and, but we had to drive past Montreal and go to Toronto, then go back to Montreal. It was like, it was so miserable. Like, I mean, we, we had like rented gear cause like we had to like ditch our gear and in, in Quebec and luckily Padge pulled it together. You know, we had like what we needed. Uh, we got our merchandise and ourselves to the shows, but um, man, dead of winter in a car metal cargo van. That was like, like that was pretty, pretty brutal. <laughs> that's Canadian tour. That's, that's definitely the go. And I remember actually reading in the hopeless uh, sampler CD that Quebec City was like the best show 88 Fingers Louie ever played uh, back then. I mean. Oh, absolutely. It, uh, insane. I mean, we were like, at, at that point, like we, we were definitely treated like rock stars. We weren't rock stars, but we were treated like we were like, um, and that, that carried over into the snow jam that we did with no use for name. Like that was, mm -hmm. that snow jam is insane. Cause you're talking about blink 182 opening up for us. And Youth Brigade was on it and 10 foot pole and no use for a name. And I remember like, like our drummer broke edge on that tour. Glenn with blink 182 got him drunk on that tour and he got alcohol poisoning. He went to the ER. <laughs> like, oh, was that the year that I, it was a high standard also on that year? too? Oh yeah. Yeah, it was for sure. Yep. It's wild when you go to Japan and you realize like, oh shit, this is the Blink-182 of Japan. Oh, they're, and they're still big. Like they, Huge. Like, yeah. like, yeah, they, they are definitely like, yeah, gigantic. Um, and what, what a great band they were, they were so tight mm -hmm. as a three piece and so quirky. Like I loved, I loved high standard. And I, I'm like fascinated by them because they also do a record super early on on HG Fact, like the home of like all like the the blistering Japanese hardcore stuff. So like once again, it's that weird parallel. Like of course it's all connected. Like even you know around the world, like punk is like this weird web where even the huge pop punk bands are connected to like the super grimy, crusty hardcore bands. Yeah. Well yeah all, it, it, you're right and um it's funny because i mean i'm sure both of us we have so many of those stories but i i would say the biggest mind fuck ever is that band i was doing that hardcore band with vic bondi right, and derek from alkaline trio right like a, a dead ending and yeah so we play detroit and we played with jay jay navarro's uh kind of motorhead band was it um Hellmouth. Hell's Hellmouth. Hellmouth. That's it. Yeah. And um, so I remember like just kind of rat, like packing up my gear and this, this kind of this kid in his twenties comes up to me and he's like, man, like that was awesome. I'm a huge fan of dead ending and I love rise against and your old band, 88 fingers, Louie. Um, and he's like, he's like, I bet you're a big fan of my dad. I'm like, who's your dad? He goes, Tesco V. And I was like, no fucking way. Like, <laughs> I was like, Oh my God. Like, like I, I was, I, I was like, is your dad here? Like, I want to talk to him. Like, <laughs> yeah. but I, I just remember thinking how cool, like, it's like just that, that six degrees kind of like thing, you know? Yeah. Well, like it's like earlier you brought up the underdog warehouse. I had uh, Amy Dumas Lita like WWE hall of famer wrestler. And she was like, yeah, I used to live at the underdog warehouse in Chicago. And it's like, Oh shit. Yeah. Like we're all weirdly connected through this or the fact that like 
Beto O'Rourke and Cedric were in that band Haas together, and they toured with Feist's old band across Canada to probably like no more than 25 people a night. Oh, shit. That's right. Uh, I, I remember that band. I, I like I didn't realize Cedric. They were I didn't realize they were in that band. <laughs> yeah, Cedric's like the original drummer. It's like Beto uh, uh, is, a, is a singer and right. uh, Cedric was a drummer and they somehow snuck into Canada. He wouldn't go into details. Cedric was on the podcast. He's like, ah, I can't really go into the details of how it happened, but we got into Canada and they end up touring with Placebo, the Canadian Placebo, which was, you know, Feist Band. That's and in it's, insane. <laughs> it's insane. It's like, it's like, it's, it's so weird, but like, and I think, you know, in Chicago, you know, like the fact that you got like these fireside bull shows where you got like, you know, CM Punk working there, you got like all these like bands that would wind up doing all these different things and all these sort of like disparate places and in music and coming out of punk rock. Like it really is such a vibrant scene. Yeah. And, and I, I, um, I've said this before and I'm, I'm like 97% certain us, the Bullevils and the Meshuganas played the first show at the fireside. <laughs> that is what a weird bill. Like, too. what an awesome bill. If, if not the first and second for sure. And it was before they had a stage and it, we were supposed to play another, another like um, VFW hall in Chicago and it got shut down and the promoter, this dude, Dave Eves, who was also part, he partnered up with Brian Peterson from Fireside, um, moved us, moved us to the, this, like back then it was like, oh, you're playing a bowling alley now. And I was like, what? Um, and then, and then all I knew about the Fireside was Naked Reagan had played there in the eighties at some point. Um, and there was literally like 20 people at the show, of course, but like, I, 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 Dennis from 88 and myself, we like, we, like, we're fairly certain that was the first show. It was either that or like, or a punk, punk when punk planet was starting, they did a benefit at the fireside. And that was one of the early uh, or show earliest shows as well. So I don't know it was either that or our show, but yeah, it was crazy to think about that and, and kind of date myself. <laughs> well, it, you know, you talk about this, like, you know, like playing a bowling alley, but I remember as a kid, like, that was like the the fabled bowling alley like watching these like videos was like screeching weasel playing there and just being like one day i'm going to go to that bowling alley and, and maybe play a show oh yeah yeah like and and prior to that you need to do yourself a favor and and google mcgregor's in chicago because that was that was like right before fireside check out the shows from the, this venue mcgregor's literally like i mean you'll probably find that a kind of christ show like on, on YouTube, um, insane shows at this place. I mean, um, but yeah, then luckily we, we were lucky enough to have fireside after that. Um, and luckily Jim, the owner of the fireside, like he was like, Oh wait, I can make more money doing this than actually bowling. So he never, you know, yeah, obviously no one was bowling at the time. Like it was all shows. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> um, uh as i say this has been incredible and you know joe anytime you want to come back here and nerd out about chicago please please do yeah absolutely thanks for having me thank you joe for coming on the show when you heard right there we got a lot more to talk about so joe will be back for a part two at some point in the future and Check, check the feed because there might be another episode dropping at some point over the weekend as kind of a, a wrap up this little mini rise against week that I did on the show. 
And Brandon's got to come on eventually because, you know, Zach's been here so many times. But, you know, we still have one more one more to go. There's some bands where I've, I've nearly got the complete set. And if you're, a, if you're a collector, you know, completing the set is what the ultimate goal is. And then, you know, you just move on and try and fill that void with something else that can never be filled. All right, let's move on. Uh, coming up later on on the show, in, in addition to the other episode that might be dropping over the weekend, but I mean, at the end of the weekend, probably on Tuesday, I'm hoping on Tuesday, we have a doozy. It's one of the longest episodes, definitely one of the longest ones, with Larry Livermore, founder of Lookout Records, uh, vocalist um, in The Lookouts, in The Potato Men, and also... <laughs> And this is this is the part that uh, to me I don't know this is this, it's probably in the book and I missed it or do not remember reading it, but uh, also uh, a legit White Panther. You, you used to answer the phone at the White Panther headquarters. We got some great stories on this thing. Holy gosh, this is worth your time. This is uh yeah if you're expecting you know me to ask him about Green Day questions and and questions you know don't no. He gets he gets asked that shit all the time. We talk about. We talk about up and oh my God, am I excited for you to hear this one. Thank you everyone for bearing with me. Once again, I am, I am doing, uh, doing, uh, juggling a couple different things right now. So, you know, I'm a little tired, a little tired, a little spacey. So if I seem a little spacey on these intros and outros lately, it's cause, uh, I'm normally recording them very, very late. So. Thank you for bearing with me on this thing. We're going to get some sleep when kids go back to school, I think. That's my goal. One day. I'll sleep again one day. The thing I say at the end about meditation, I, I, I really do stand by it. You know, it's really that meditation. Also, I recently discovered coffee. That's helping me a lot. So, um, anyway, <laughs> that's it. Uh, remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives of Indigenous people matter. We need to protect trans kids, and we need to help trans people protect themselves. There needs to be a stop of hate and violence towards Asian people and hate and violence towards people of different faiths and just people that choose to believe in different things. Like, these aren't political issues. These are just basic human rights issues. Uh, go out right now and get informed about what's going on in this world. You know, just there's lots of places to read up on stuff. If there's organizations that that move you with the work they're doing, you know, find find ways to donate. You know, it doesn't have to be money. Maybe it's time. Maybe you can volunteer some other way. Um, yeah, you know, fuck fuck Nazis. You know, smash fascism. This shit is not new. This is old. This is like punk one oh one shit. Punk one oh one shit. Uh, oh, go out there and do something creative, you know, start a podcast. Anyone can do this shit. This shit is, look at it. Like just anyone do this shit. Um, but you know, maybe try to start a zine, start a band, you know, start that after me, a band, do something creative, draw a picture. You don't even have to share it with anyone, but it helps. It helps your mental health. As I mentioned before, meditate. If you, uh, are so inclined, uh, you can't force anyone to do something they don't want to do. I found that it's really helped me. Um, what else? Uh, um, uh, sign your organ donor cards. Cause like, uh, you know, they don't, 
they don't take them when you're still using them. Just go for them when you don't need them anymore. And so, like, who the fuck cares? You know, and it, and it will make all the difference in someone's life. I can tell you from personal uh, family experience. And uh, hug the people around you. Try and love love the people around you. I sound like a hippie, but, you know, maybe the hippies were wrong, but the ideas were right, you know? They were right about that weed stuff, apparently. Uh, speaking of which, listen to Oil and Flowers, Buddha Blaze, as I mentioned off the top. Well, I mentioned Buddha Blaze. I didn't mention Oil and Flowers, but check out Oil and Flowers. And that's it. I think uh, I think that's it. Stay safe. Uh, we're almost, we're hopefully almost through this thing. We're open, open. I, I can't be fucking playing with faith no more. That's wild. And that's it. I will see you on the next episode. Larry Livermore. It's a good one. A long one. A long one, but it's a good one. Love you. Bye.